0: Our reading this morning is from the book of Acts. I'll be reading from chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem, To see the apostles and the elders about this question the church sent them on their way and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria they told how the gentiles had been converted the news made all the believers very glad when they came to Jerusalem they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the neck of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest of times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. So today, um, the topic, um, or maybe I should say the title, better put, it's theology crafted in community. Now, you all know about revolutions, especially on a day like this, the Fourth of July, we remember the American Revolution. But there's revolutions going on all the time, right? Sometimes significant conflict. Sometimes they're just revolutions that, well, frankly, are business like. There's actually one going on right now. You may not have noticed it, but if you read business journals or even check the internet, you'll find out that there is what is called a craft revolution going on. A craft revolution. What what does a craft revolution refer to? It refers to not craftiness, but the craft of making individual things. For instance... The senior equity research analyst, her name is Judy Yong from Goldman Sachs, said the entire market economy that we're now living in is undergoing this revolution. And big companies in the United States and globally better come to terms with it. What's an example of a craft revolution? Local handmade specialties that are, in many cases, undermining large corporations. Do you know what the biggest craft revolution in the market is right now? Beer. If you've lived in Bloomington very long, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's all kinds of craft beers out there right? So uh, some people might not think it's a good idea for a preacher to start out his sermon talking about craft beers, but I'm going on vacation tomorrow. Uh, right. <laughs> you know, just like comedy, timing is everything. So <laughs> the, the, the point is, if you, if you look at the market economy, that is the biggest craft industry that's happening. As a matter of fact, they're suggesting it's somewhere between eight to 14% of the market share right now is craft beer. That is local breweries and distilleries, but not so much in hard alcohol as much as in beer. And furthermore, they suggest that very rapidly it's going to become 20%. Now, if, if beer is offensive to you, think of something else. Think of the notion of farm-to-table restaurants, okay? And how many of those are popping up? That's a craft industry. Or, if like me, you're a connoisseur of coffees, consider how you cannot go into any town, especially in this town, without finding a local roaster of coffee. Of course, we can't grow it in Bloomington, but we can get it from somewhere else and roast our beans a certain way. And, and there's, there's roasters all over this town, different coffee shops that are popping up that are unique. Um, Just a plug, hopscotch is great. If you're a coffee guy, try it sometime. They've got a great locally roasted uh, brand of coffee. Here's the point. Craft means to develop in the context of tight-knit community, right? It's not big, it's not global, it's not huge, but the effect of craft sometimes does have global significance. And the effect of small craft is now having a global significance on our market economy. You may think I'm twisting a little bit to get to this point. But I'm more convinced all the time than ever I was before. That true, can I use an overused word, epic theology is always crafted in community. You think about the history of the Christian church. Whether it's Augustine or Calvin or Luther or Zwingli, it was crafted in community and frequently crafted out of crisis. And the influence was epic. I think today when we look at this particular episode, chapter 15 of the book of Acts, we see this. We see a theology crafted in community, and it has huge global ramifications. Now, don't get me wrong. I think you understand me well enough to know that I don't suggest that you ought to craft your own unique theology and figure out how creative you can be. That is usually called heresy. This crafting of theology happened in the story and and you saw it play out. You heard about the characters and you heard about how they came to a conclusion concerning a very important matter. First of all, let me mention this, at the beginning of the story what you see, and maybe you don't pick up on it immediately but you can kind of pick up on it in Galatians and other places, probably the people who came from Antioch were people who were there to drive a wedge between the apostles with the teaching that they were promoting. Uh, That's pretty common, isn't it? Uh, Among church leaders, frequently, people try to drive a wedge. Among colleagues at your work, people try to drive a wedge. And I think, really, the most negative interpretation is that these folks were trying to drive a wedge. You could come up with a more positive one, and I may refer to that. But definitely a wedge was being driven or attempted to be driven between the apostles. Um, I'll never forget one time, um, those of you who've been around here a while will remember the name John Long. Uh, Many of you don't uh, know John. He's passed on. And uh, he was just a, a wonderful a Christian scholar, uh, not a professional theologian, but a professor at the university, a, a brilliant man who was fully dedicated to Jesus Christ and to the church. And I'll never forget on one occasion, he he always spoke with such succinctness and clarity, right? When when John spoke, he thought, you know what? That doesn't need to be revised grammatically. We can put that down on paper. He He just never misspoke. So on one occasion, there was a little... Stirring going on, um, you know, stirring out of church. And um, one particular person seemed to be at the forefront of this stirring. And John uh, walked into my office one day and he sat down and he said, Bob, I'm beginning to think that the primary motivation for this individual's position is to drive a wedge between you and me. John was the chair of the Board of Elders at that time. And then he said, I'm not going to let that happen. You see, in that moment for John, it wasn't necessarily about the issue. He might have had a different opinion than I did about the issue. But he said, I feel something going on here. It's untoward, and I'm not going to let it happen. I, I remember times like that over the various number of years of ministry where especially an older person has spoken wisdom into my life, and it, it sets the stage for other things. So there were men who had come to, I think, drive a wedge between the apostles. And Peter, James, and John, seeking the truth, for sure. But also, they were motivated by the fact that they weren't going to be driven apart. This was the church. Now, the issue that you heard read in the Scripture this morning related primarily, if you read it in a cursory way, to circumcision. But, of course, it really related to Gentiles and Jews, And the issue is bigger than circumcision. As a matter of fact, this issue, you might have thought, was solved with Peter and Cornelius. Remember that episode where before Peter actually arrives at the house of Cornelius, he gets this vision from God, this sheet with unclean animals in it, and God says to Peter, rise and eat. And he says, no way am I ever going to eat anything unclean? And God said, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Peter began to realize on the basis of that revelation that God was opening the door in a dramatic way to the Gentiles and to use that understanding to help change the church. You would think they'd gotten that one figured out, right? I mean, it had just happened, actually no, it had happened 10 years earlier, 10 years and they're basically back at the same point that's why Peter gets up and his talk and reminds them of the past we do have a short memory don't we as a matter of fact circumcision though it was huge was not the main issue it was it was just something that helped us understand a bigger issue um, especially since uh, we're all collected together in children's ministries not Um, fully functional like it is in the school year. I won't be too explicit, but it was a big issue. It was especially a big issue because it was a stigma among Jewish men in the public bathhouses of Rome and all over the empire. Very common. People would know who you were immediately. So it was a badge of honor it was part of the covenant but it was also a badge that created disdain or derision and ostracized, uh, being ostracized from society I say that to remind you of something the folks who were arguing about this issue were in effect saying for hundreds and hundreds of years this has been our identity And it is in the context of that identity, our Jewishness, that the Messiah was birthed. How can you walk away from that as part of our chief identity? It was almost like baptism to them. So do you understand why they're a little worked up about it? now I'm on the positive side of those who are trying to drive the wedge it says that they were Christian Pharisees they were a part of the Christian community that was a part of the party of Pharisees it was important to them and they said this has got to be a line in the sand of course the Gentiles are welcome in to the covenant community of those who believe in the Messiah. But we have to have some distinctions. And this one has always been true of us. Let's make it true now. Circumcision was really a catch-all for this the totality of, of the ceremonial laws, I think. It was it was really kind of a catch phrase for many other things. And As we look backward, more than in the moment, we realize that circumcision was also a catchphrase for legalism. Because the real issue, as you note, from Peter and from James, is about salvation through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And so the concern for the apostles is not to mix things up I don't want you to pretend that you have to do this and this and this to receive the grace of God. You receive the grace of God and then you follow God. And circumcision is not necessary or the ceremonial laws, for you to have a stamp of authenticity on your life. That was a big issue. it was really about grace. It was really about this doctrine that Protestants have come to embrace for so long. Justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Period. Exclamation point. End of sentence. But Let's remember something. The most marvelous grace of Jesus, which is a gift, is often the hardest gift to receive or at least to embrace fully. Why? Because surely... Surely we have to do something to earn our way. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Surely, I've got to do something to distinguish myself. You know how interesting that is to me? Uh, Because it's me. (laughs) What's so interesting to me about that? is that it seems so righteous and it's so full of pride because it's about me again when I get to that place I allow grace to be eclipsed because of the pride that I have concerning my own self-worth and my ability or inability to achieve what I believe God wants me to achieve to be a child of God When we accept grace, we are admitting our absolute unworthiness. You can't go any lower when you accept grace. When you truly understand grace, you realize how far down you are. And that goes right to the heart of our pride. Grace isn't a, uh, a step in the ladder to salvation. Sometimes, even we as Protestants see it that way. We see it as a step and the ladder of salvation. We got in because of grace. And after that, it's all up to us. But that's not true either. Grace is the continuous ladder of salvation the grace of Jesus God is continually distributed to us in order for salvation to be a possibility it's all grace when we accept grace completely we lose all control and that's unnerving but when we accept grace completely we understand the love of God. Of course, you could go overboard as many people do and Paul gives us instructions not to do that. Don't send that grace may abound in all those phrases which are really true. But if we understand grace and our unworthiness and the acceptance that comes through Jesus Christ of us as unworthy as we are, it's a motivation to love God completely and follow him fully that's the motivation not the rules love in a nutshell I think that's what this council was trying to say now the way it unfolded is there was a huge dispute Um. Your text, if you looked at the NIV, probably said after much discussion, that's lame. Um, A better translation is after much dispute, they came to a conclusion, a consensus. And they came to a consensus by three major personalities speaking into the issue. First there uh, there was Paul. Paul's kind of a newbie on the scene, by the way, at this point. He's kind of a young buck theologian. And for the most part, he's off in the frontier doing things that nobody else is doing and experiencing the reality of the gospel being spread to the Gentiles. And he's bringing back these amazing stories. Paul is kind of out there. Let's put Paul on the left, shall we? He's a left winger. He gets grace. And the Gentiles are coming in, and it's great! And then you have Peter. I want to call Peter a middle of the rotor, right? Peter the one who probably has more knowledge than anybody in the room of Jesus Christ, because he followed him from day one once he was called. He understood grace because he walked away from Jesus and denied him. And Jesus looked at him and invited him back. He got it. And he was a pillar of the church. He was the leader. Peter sees it. Shall we say both ways? He understands grace. But he's Jewish to the core. He understands grace, but he was hanging on to the ceremonial law because it seemed right and righteous. There's Peter. Left Paul, center Peter, right James. Good old James. You know who James probably was? He was probably the brother of Jesus who didn't believe. Not while Jesus was alive. Not until later, because the New Testament tells us Jesus made a special post-resurrection visit to James. Isn't that great for a brother? <laughs> I know you live with me. We used to uh, fight over toys. I think I probably hit you. Don't you think Jesus did that? I think he probably did. I mean. You don't think so? Well, okay, that's another theology thing. I I get it, James. It's hard for you to believe that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I thought I'd show up to make it easier for you to believe. We don't know much about the encounter, but we know basically the substance of what happened but, and we could summarize it with the words of another disciple. My Lord and my God, I believe. At some point, James said those words, if not with his mouth, with his heart. Now, James is really the guy to the right. He's the Pharisee of Pharisees among them. He does it all right. He follows most people would have said, the letter of the law. Now now, now let me pause for a minute. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with James following the letter of the ceremonial law and washing his hands when he's supposed to and doing all the things that are prescribed by the law of Moses. All of it. Nothing wrong with it. As long as James wasn't holding on to it as a ladder of salvation. James was a law follower, he was a devoted follower of Jesus, and he understood the party of the Pharisees very well. As a matter of fact he had a reputation and they called him James the Just because he was so righteous and so much in prayer. Tradition tells us, and this is just routinely across the case, across the the, the scholarship James actually was known for praying so much on his knees that he had huge calluses on them like they said camels did James the just James the righteous James is the one far to the right that stands up and is the last to speak and I think because of his status is the most persuasive and he says, my brothers, in effect, you've got to understand that this whole thing is about grace. And if it's all about grace, we can't heap a burden on the Gentiles that even we can't bear. Now, see, if somebody else had said that, they would say, well, of course you can't bear it because you never followed the law. But they couldn't say that about James. James did follow it. And it's James that says, I can't take the burden of the law. None of us can. This whole thing's about grace. So let's not burden the Gentiles any more than is necessary. Let's give them a mandate, which is really kind of minimalist, and allow them to rejoice in the grace of Jesus Christ just as we have. Oh, by the way, let me remind you, that is after there was much dispute. Don't water it down. Don't pretend like unanimity existed from the beginning or even as we might consider unanimity at the end. It was a consensus that later in the text it says it seems best to the Holy Spirit and to us, to ask the Gentiles to do just these things. You notice how soft touch that is? <laughs> it's not ex cathedra, it's not you must do so, it, it seems best as we have wrestled through this intense discussion and prayed together, it seems best to the Holy Spirit and to us that you ought to do these things. Um, uh, I I grew up in the party of the Pharisees as a kid. That's what it was. No better way to describe it if you know what the bible's about in the fair Pharise- i grew up in the party of the pharisees and they were devoted followers of christ and i think they were even to the right of james i'm not sure sometimes they even understood grace but they tried but among those folks there were a few people who were like him. One of them I called Dad. He was part of the party of the Pharisees professionally. A leader in the church and president of the Bible college. But as I think back about my heritage... Oh, by the way, it's taken me a long time to get there. I see a few Jameses in my background. Especially my dad. Who could almost be heard in my mind right now. Saying to me as a young boy. Bobby, I understand but it seems best to me that we do such and such. <laughs> he, he, he was a, a humble man, and, and he wouldn't have said, it seems best to me in the Holy Spirit. But I think that was the reality a lot of times. Of course, before it was all over, uh, my dad had to leave that context because that message is not easily received, is it? So, what are some things to consider uh, from this story? The first one is sort of an off-topic application. I admit it, but I got to say it. It just, it was there, so I have to. And here it is. Faith often emerges out of crisis reason I say it's off topic is because it's not necessarily about this but it might be about you sometimes people are criticized for being weak when their faith is born out of crisis and I want to say how else is it born when you come to the crisis to understand that you do not have what it takes to achieve salvation of yourself you have a crisis experience where you turn your life over to Jesus and when in the course of human events you run into multiple crises that bring you to your knees that are not necessarily theological in nature they're a crisis that God has allowed in your life to allow you a pathway to faith are you there right now I don't know where you are But are you there? One of those points of crisis, it may be that now, unlike any other time, you can see clearly. A number of years ago, I read a book about uh, survivors and the kinds of things that happen to survivors. And sometimes... In the midst of a crisis, um, everything turns upside down. People are completely disoriented. But very often, when a crisis comes along, people's vision becomes crystal clear. The things that are not as important just sort of fade out and the focus becomes life itself. You see this in the greatest of athletes too. The whole world is about that. And my friend, wherever you are, if it's a crisis, it's possible that now you can see clearly. And now is your opportunity to come to faith. If that's you, make it today. It'll change life forever. Now, uh, some things to consider a little bit more closely related to this text. In a similar way that crisis often allows faith to emerge, I'm more convinced over time that it's possible, no, let me say probable, That the pathway to truth comes from wrestling with ideas in conflict. That's why I want to suggest this. Controversy and conflict is not all bad. As a matter of fact, it can be a tremendous blessing. It's about how we handle it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we create conflict and controversy. It'll come on its own, right? You know that. No need to stir it up. On the other hand, theology, it seems, I mean, the doctrine concerning God and humanity, broadly speaking, theology frequently comes from controversies. I've mentioned it before, you can't read the epistles of Paul, with the exception maybe of Ephesians, without realizing that the only reason we have the letter is because somebody was doing something stupid. And Paul had to talk about it. And now it's become a bedrock in our theology. Conflict and crisis and controversy are frequently God's way of revealing His will to the church. If God can use the wrath of men to praise Him, as the psalmist said, God can certainly use controversy and conflict among the body of Christ to reveal His will. And at a psychological level, apart from the spiritual, this is always true. If we work through conflict well, isn't it? We begin to wonder, what is the other person's perspective if we're trying to work through this? We begin to learn from the other in a way we could never learn from the other unless we had been in this kind of collision course of ideas. So conflict and controversy are not all bad. Sometimes they're the pathway to truth and the way God leads the church. The further we get away from real people... And other people's ideas, not our own? I mean, controversy with real honesty? The further we get away from that, the more unrealistic and detached our theology is. Ain't the church great? <laughs> Just a, a personal aside. I have often wished, don't get all wigged out and worried, I just got to be honest. I've always wished that I could be released from this calling, this pastoral calling, to do theology, to be an academic. to teach maybe that's why I love this place so much because I kind of feel like I can a little bit but let me tell you something about my personal journey it's taken an awful long time for me to get to the place to realize that that probably wouldn't be good for me it's good for others and I so appreciate what they do but I don't think it would be good for me not just because of discipleship right and becoming a better follower of Christ in community but because of understanding the nature of God and humanity in other words understanding my passion theology. I've actually come to believe that it's in this context that I understand most thoroughly. Not another one that I might have preferred. So that was a long way to say (laughs) controversy and conflict is not all bad. By the way, I just, I just love this one service thing because I, I don't have to worry about anybody in the parking lot. If you want to leave, you can. That's all right, but I got a few more things. Controversy and conflict are, are not all bad. Okay, that's the first major thing. Second major thing is this. I want you to notice something. <laughs> this conflict grew out of progress. In other words, the reason for the conflict is because they were sharing the gospel. <laughs> the reason they had problems is because they were doing what they were supposed to do. The reason they had conflict is because they were being in the church. Wouldn't it be great if all our problems came from that? Instead of introspection and navel-gazing? Maybe that's when we're off track with con- conflict and controversy. When it's all Introspection. I just love the fact that this major conflict happened because they were doing their job. So in the progress of sharing the gospel, let's craft theology. And sometimes there'll be a lot of tension in it. The third thing I want to mention is this. Compromise is not... An evil concept. Now, you might think otherwise if you listen to our political candidates. Polarization is the word of the day. But my friends, can you think of anything more that illustrates compromise than this episode in the church? Well, you probably can because it continued to happen. That's what life in community is about. We listen to one another's stories. We do the work of the ministry. We spread the gospel. And in the midst of all of that, we come into conflict. And then we sit down together. And we look one another in the eye. We don't talk about each other or shout at each other. We look at a brother or a sister in the eye. And we listen to their story. And then we both say, This is not about me, it's about the church. So, what's the solution? That's compromise. I know it's got a bad name, but not this kind. And often those solutions which are a compromise, which are local solutions for a local problem which this was, become enormously global. And affect the church forever, as this did. Their decision, which was a form of compromise between James on the right, Paul on the left, and Peter in the middle, their form of compromise created ECC. We would not be here without it. So Gentiles believers, rejoice in the compromise led by the Spirit in Acts chapter 15. And keep up the good work. We got a lot of opportunities for that, don't we, here at ECC especially such a diverse group of people we have an opportunity to learn and to listen to other people's opinions we have an opportunity in community to consider personal circumstances and to craft practical theology we have an opportunity to build consensus when we have opposite opinions Building consensus with opposite opinions. That's an opportunity. Uh, it must have been, yeah, it was. First year I came, I was still wet behind the ears, but not because of sweat. <laughs> I think I was 37, wasn't I, dear? When we first got here, or something like that. She's not confirming or denying that. Um, <laughs> And for those of you who may know, uh, this church was in a bit of a crisis. Um, It had gone through a devastating split. It was, as Don Cowie said, like walking into a funeral parlor. That's what he described it as. First time he came. Still can't figure out why it came. But anyway, I... I came (laughs) and early on um, I'd proposed something and uh, obviously staff and I had talked about it a lot and presented it to the board and made a suggestion about a change and there was intense conversation about it and, and then we just parted without coming to a consensus. John Long, I have mentioned, has gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, The person I'm about to mention is still on this earth, doesn't go to church here anymore because he lives somewhere else, but um, I don't know if he'll hear the podcast or whatever, but anyway, the story's about a, a, a wonderful Christian brother who had an opinion about everything, seriously, about everything. His name was John Spahn, okay? Those of you who know John know what I'm talking about. He took me out to lunch after this time we were discussing things. He, at the time, was the chairman of the board. And we went to lunch, and we talked about this and other issues, and I didn't know where he was, and we came back, and he pulled up to that front door out there, the old church. And I was about ready to get out the car, and I opened the door. And he said, Bob, I want to tell you something. I said, what's that, John? He said... I've been thinking about this proposal. And I really don't like it. In fact, I'm against it. But he said, it's time for me to put my personal preference aside and do what I think is in the best interest of the church. So I'm going to say yes. He hadn't changed his opinion about the issue, not at all, but he said yes. He played the role of James. He may look back at us now and wish he'd said, no, I don't know, but he said yes. (laughs) The point was he didn't allow himself to get in the way. He allowed himself to be shaped in community and allowed the community to be shaped for itself. It's too late for me to go into all the aspects of diversity here at ECC, and um, I just won't. I just want to end with this. We're called to be led by the Spirit. That's not just some kind of mystical hooey, hooey out there. You know what being led by the Spirit looks like in this passage? Much dispute, personal eye-to-eye interaction, prayer, and a collective decision. That we believe this is the Spirit's leading. All of that. All of that. Without an aura of infallibility. Just because we make a decision... Doesn't mean it's perfect. And just because we make a decision, we might not look, we might look back and wish we'd have done it differently. But as the body of Christ, we feel the leading of the Spirit to do this now. Okay, just one more thing. There's no big deal coming up that I know of, but I'm going on vacation, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the Lord of the church. Um, we thank you that you bring uh, people into our lives who have really deep-seated opinions. We wouldn't want it either any other way, Lord. We want to be passionate about our faith. If we're not passionate, we'll just die. We'll be like that lukewarm water that John spoke about in the revelation. And we don't want to be that. So, Lord, help us to be honest and passionate and generous. Help us to listen and to learn. Give us the grace of humility because it's not natural. And then, Lord, help us to be led by the Spirit Not in an arrogant ex-cathedra kind of way. But in a way, it's full of grace and peace. Understanding that we're not infallible, but we're called. And because we're called, and because it is your church, you will accomplish your will through broken vessels like us. And that, O Lord, is grace. We thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.